Section 29 of The Devolutionist and the Emancipatrix. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirby Bonds. The Devolutionist and the Emancipatrix by Homer Eon Flint. Part 2. Chapter 11. The Edge of the World. It is significant that Billy, because of her connection with the bee, Supreme, was spared the sight that the doctor saw from Rolla's point of view. Otherwise, the geologist's wife might have had a different opinion of the matter. As it was, Chorus and Dulnop said she as coolly as Supreme herself might have spoken, are not the first to suffer because they have discovered something big. Whereupon her husband's wrath got beyond his grip. Not the first? Is that all you can say? he demanded hotly. Why, of all the damnably cruel, cold-blooded creatures I ever heard of, those infernal bees— Van Emmon stopped, unable to go on without blasphemy. The doctor had got over the horror of what he had seen. We want to be fair, Van. Look at this matter from the bees' viewpoint for a while. What were they to do? They had to make sure, as far as possible, that their supremacy would never be threatened again, didn't they? Oh, but damn it all, cried Van Emmon. There's a limit somewhere. Such cruelty as that, no one could conceive of it. As for the bees, Billy flared, I don't blame them. And unless I'm very much mistaken, the ruling class anywhere, here on earth or wherever you investigate, will go the limit to hold the reins once they get them. The expression on Van Emmon's face was curious to see. There was no fear there, only a puzzled astonishment, strange as it may seem. Billy had told him something that had never occurred to him before, and he recognized it as truth as soon as she had said it. "'Just a minute,' remarked Smith, in an ordinary voice. "'Just a minute.' You're forgetting that we really don't know whether Rolla and Kenora are safe. Everything depends upon them now, you know? In silence, the four went back to the telepathic connection. Now, of course, Smith and Van Emmon were practically without agents. The prisoners could tell them nothing, whatever, except the tale of increasing agony as their torture went on. All that Van Emmon and Smith could do was to lend the aid of their mentality to the efforts of the other two, and for a while had to be content with what Billy, through Supreme, and the doctor, through Rolla, were able to learn. However, Kinney did suggest that one of the other two men get in touch with Kenora. "'Good idea,' said Smith. "'Go to it, Van Emmon.' The geologist stirred uneasily and avoided his wife's eyes. I, I'm afraid not, Smith. Rather think I prefer to rest a while. You do it. Smith laughed and reddened. Nothing doing for an old batch like me. Kenora might, well, you know, go in 
bathing, for instance. It's all right for the doctor, of course, but let me out. Meanwhile, the two women on Sanus, taking the utmost care, managed to retreat from the river bank without being discovered, keeping their eyes very wide open and their ears strained for the slightest buzz. The two contrived to pass through the village, out into the fields, and thence from cover to cover into the foothills on that side of the valley where their lovers had found the pyrites. "'If we only knew which stream they ascended,' lamented Kenora, as they stood in indecision before a fork in the river. "'But we don't,' Rolla pointed out philosophically. "'We must trust to luck and Monnath, yea, and I.' And despite all the effort the doctor could put forth to the contrary, the two women picked out the wrong branch. They searched as diligently as two people possibly could. But somehow the doctor knew, just because of the wrong choice that had been made, that their search would be unsuccessful. He thought the matter over for several moments and finally admitted to his three friends. I wonder if I haven't been a little silly. Why should I have been so precious specific in impressing Rolla about the pyrites? Pshaw! Almost any hard rock will strike barks from flint. Why, of course, exploded Van Evan. Here, let's get busy and tell Rolla. But it proved astonishingly difficult. The two women were in an extraordinary condition now. They were continually on the alert. In fact, the word alert scarcely described the state of mind the keen, desperate watchfulness which filled every one of their waking hours and caused each to remain awake as long as possible so that they invariably fell to sleep without warning. They could not be caught in the drowsy state. For they knew something about the bees, which the four on earth did not learn until Billy had overheard Supreme giving some orders. Set a guard on that river bank, she told her subordinate, and maintain it night and day. If any inferior attempts to recover the magic stone, deal with him or her in the same manner in which we punish the finders of the deadly flower. It shall be done, Supreme. Is there anything further? Yes. Make quite sure that none of the inferiors are missing. Shortly afterward, the lieutenant reported that one of the huts was empty. Rolla the soil-tester and Kenora the vineyardist are gone. Seek them! Supreme almost became excited. They are the lovers of the men we punished. They would not absent themselves unless they knew something. Find them and torture them into revealing the secret. We must weed out this flowering blossom forever. It shall be done. Such methods were well known to Rolla and Kenora. Had not their fellow villagers, many of them, tried time after time to escape from bondage, and had they not inevitably been apprehended and driven back to be tortured as an example to the rest, it would never do to be caught. So they made it a practice to travel only during twilight and dawn, remaining hidden through the day. Invariably, one stood watch while the other slept. The bees were everywhere. 
Upon crossing the range of mountains going down the other side, Cunora and Rolla began to feel hopeful of two things. First, that their luck would change, and the wonderful stone be found, and second, that they would be in no danger from the bees in this new country, which seemed to be a valley much like the one they had quit. It was all quite new and strange to them, and in their interest they almost forgot at times that each had a terrible score to settle when her chance finally came. Twice they had exceedingly narrow escapes. Always they kept carefully hid. But on the third day, Kenora, advancing cautiously through some brush, came suddenly upon two bees feeding. She stopped short and held her breath. Neither saw her, so intent were they upon their honey. Yet Kenora felt certain that each had been warned to watch out for her. This was true. Billy learned that every bee on the planet had been told, and so Kenora silently backed away an inch at a time until it was safe to turn and run. On another occasion, Rolla surprised a big drone bee, just as she bent to take a drink of water from a stream. The insect had been out of her sight on the other side of a boulder. It rose with an angry buzz as she bent down. A few feet away from her it hung in the air, apparently scrutinizing her to make sure that she was one of the runaways. Her heart leapt to her mouth. Suppose they were reported. She made a lightning-like grab at the thing, and very nearly caught it. Straight up it shot, taken by surprise, dashed blindly into a ledge of rock which hung overhead. For a second it foundered, dazed, and that second was its last. Kenora gave a single bound forward, and with a vicious swing of a palm-leaf which she always carried, smashed the bee flat. Before they had been free five days, they came to an exceedingly serious conclusion, that it was only a question of time until they were caught. Sooner or later they must be forced to return. They could not hope to dodge bees much longer. When Rolla fully realized this, she turned gravely to the younger girl. Methinks the time has come for us to make a choice, Kenora. Which shall it be? Live as we have been living in the past four days, with the certainty of being caught in time, or face the unknown perils on the edge of the world. Kenora dropped the piece of stone she had been inspecting and shivered with fear. A dreadful choice ye offer, Rolla. Think of the horrible beasts we must encounter. Ye mean, corrected the philosophical one, ye mean, the beasts which men say they have seen. Tell me, hast ever seen such thyself? Many times hast thou been near the edge, I know. The girl shook her head. Nay, not I. Yet these beasts must be. Why else should all men tell of them? I note, remarked Rolla thoughtfully, that each man tells of seeing a different sort of beast. Perchance they were all but lies. However, it was Kenora's fear of capture, rather than her faith in Rolla's reasoning, which drove the girl to the north. For to the north they traveled, a matter of some two weeks, 
and not once did they dare relax their vigilance. Wherever they went, there was vegetation of some sort, and wherever there was vegetation, bees were likely to be found. By the time the two weeks were over, the women were in a state of near hysteria, from the nervous strain of it all. Moreover, both suffered keenly for want of cereals, to which they were accustomed. They were heartily tired of such fruits and nuts as they were able to pick up without exposing themselves. One morning, before daybreak, they came to the upper end of a long, narrow valley, one which paralleled their own, by the way, and as they emerged from the plain to the foothills, it was clear that they had reached a new type of country. There was comparatively little brush. With every step the rockiness increased. By dawn they were on the edge of a plateau. Back of them stretched the inhabited country. Ahead a haze-covered expanse. Nothing but rocks was about them. "'Ye are sure that we had best keep on?' asked Kenora uneasily. Rolla nodded, slowly but positively. "'It is best. Back of us lies certain capture. Ahead we know not what, but at least there is a chance.' Nevertheless, both hesitated before starting over the plateau. Each gazed back longingly over the home of their kind, and for a moment Rolla's resolution plainly faltered. She hesitated. Kenora made a move as though to return, and at that instant their problem was decided for them. A large drone passed within six feet of them. Both heard the buzz and whirled about to see the bee darting frantically out of reach. At a safe distance it paused, as though to make sure of its find, then disappeared down the valley. They had been located. "'We have no choice now,' cried Rolla, speaking above a whisper for the first time in weeks. "'On, as fast as ye can, Kenora.' The two sped over the rocks, making pretty good time, considering the loads they carried. Each had a good-sized goatskin full of various dried fruits and nuts, also a gourd not so full. In fact, it had been some while since they had had fresh water. Kenora was further weighted down by some six pounds of dried rabbit meat. The animals had been caught in snares. Both, however, discarded their palm leaves. They would be of no further use now. And thus they fled knowing that they had, at most, less than a day before the drone would return with enough soldiers to compel obedience. For the most part the surface was rough granite, with very little sign of erosion. There was almost no water. Both women showed intense joy when they found a tiny pool of it standing in a crevice. They filled their gourds as well as their stomachs. A few steps farther on, and the pair stepped out of the shallow gully in which they had been walking, immediately they were exposed to very strong and exceedingly cold wind, such as seemed to surprise them in no way, but compelled both to actually lean against its force. Moreover, although this pressure was all from the left, it proved exceedingly difficult to go on. Their legs seemed made of lead, their breathing was strangely labored. This also appeared to be just what they had expected. Presently, however, 
they found another slight depression in the rocks, and sheltered from the wind, made a little better progress ahead. It was bitter cold. However, only the violence of their exercise could make them warm enough to stand it. All in all, the two were considerably over three hours in making the last mile. They had to stop frequently to rest. The only compensating thing was their freedom from worry. The bees would not bother them where the wind was so strong. So long as they could keep on the move, they were safe. But what made it worse was the steadily increasing difficulty of moving their legs, for although the surface continued level, they seemed to be climbing now. Where before they had simply walked, it was just as though the plateau had changed into a mountain, and they were ascending it. Only, upon looking back, nothing but comparatively flat rock met the gaze. What made them lean forward so steeply anyhow? Rolla seemed to think it was all very ordinary. She was more concerned about the wind to which they had become once more exposed as they reached the end of the riff. On they pressed, five or six steps at each attempt, stopping to rest the length of time they had actually traveled. It was necessary now to cling to the rock with both hands, and once Kenora lost her grip so that she would have been blown to one side, or else have slipped backward, had not Rolla grasped her heel and held her until she could get another handhold. Courage, gasped Rolla. Perspiration was streaming down her face despite the bitter cold of the wind. Her hands trembled from the strain she was undergoing. Courage, Kenora, it be not much further. On they strove. Always it seemed as though they were working upward as well as onward. Although the continued flatness of the surface argued obstinately against this. Also the sun remained in the same position relative to the rocks. If they were climbing, it should have appeared overhead. What did it mean? Finally Rolla saw, about a hundred yards farther on, something which caused her to shout, Almost there, Kenora. The younger girl could not spare breath enough to reply. They struggled on in silence. Now they were down on their hands and knees. Before half the hundred yards was covered, they were flat on their faces, literally crawling their way upward and onward. Had the wind increased in violence in proportion as the way grew harder, they could never have made it, physical marvels though they were. Only the absolute knowledge that they dared not return drove them on. That and the possibility of finding the precious stone, and of ultimately saving the two men they had left behind. The last twenty feet was the most extraordinary effort that any human had ever been subjected to. They had to take turns in negotiating the rock. One would creep a few inches on, get a good hold, and brace herself against the wind, while the other, crawling alongside, used her as a sort of crutch. Their fingers were bleeding, and their fingernails cracked from the cold and wind. The same is equally true of their toes. It had been forty feet instead of twenty.
the rocks ended there. Beyond was nothing but sky. Even this was not like what they were used to, but was very nearly black. Two more spurts, and Rolla threw one hand ahead and caught the edge of the rock. Kenora dragged herself alongside. The effort brought blood to their nostrils. They rested a minute or two, then looked at one another in mute inquiry. Kenora nodded. Rolla took a great breath, and they drew themselves to the edge and looked over. End of Part 2, Chapter 11